Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a lecture by Dr. Cleophus J. LaRue. He teaches at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's the Francis Landy Patton Professor of Homiletics there. He's been to Beeson on several occasions, and we're going to hear a lecture today that he presented at Beeson back uh, several years ago entitled African American Preaching and the Bible. This was given in 2007. Dr. Cleophus LaRue is a wonderful scholar. He's been a pastor. He's an ordained minister of the National Baptist Convention of North America. Among his several outstanding books are Rethinking Celebration from Rhetoric to Praise in African-American Preaching, and another one, I Believe I'll Testify, Reflections on African-American Preaching. I'm happy to tell you that Dr. LaRue is coming back to Beeson in just a few weeks, January 9 to 13 in 2017. Dr. LaRue will be with us to offer a special course on African-American preaching here at Beeson Divinity School. But go back now to 2007. Let's hear this wonderful lecture. Oh, I want to tell you something. After the lecture, which is the first part of his presentation, he kind of just breaks into preaching. Watch for that. you got a sermon and a lecture here. That's his style, and he does it with great finesse and great spirit and passion. Let's hear our friend, Dr. Cleophus J. LaRue, speaking on African-American preaching and the Bible. Let me thank you for the invitation to come uh, this way. It's been a, a very pleasurable experience for me to uh, be at uh, Beeson for these past few days. I want to thank Dr. George for the um, invitation, Dr. Smith, Dr. Miller, Dr. Pounds, and uh, a host of others uh, in this wonderful student body for the time that I have uh, uh, been here. It's been marvelous to interact with the students and their minds and their hopes and their futures and all. Thank you once again. I I talked yesterday along the lines of how to, with respect to um, preaching and gave examples. And today I want to talk uh, specifically about a component of uh, African-American preaching. And so in that regard, it won't have all the examples and as Craddock says, the slices of life and all of that, but I hope it'll be something that will at least engage your minds is it's something new I'm trying to think through and also your your comments will be um, appreciated. Um, For over a decade now I have been involved in this quest to discover distinctiveness in black preaching. In the late 90s I enumerated what I believe to be broad and widely accepted characteristics of this style of preaching high regard for scripture, creative rhetoric, an unabashed display of emotion, and a certain license of freedom in the preaching moment. I argued for five realms or domains of black preaching that aided blacks in their efforts to preach the whole counsel of God. I also argued in equal measure for a distinctive hermeneutic in black sermons, a template, if you will, 
that viewed God as a powerful agent proactively involved in the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed. I made and continue to make this argument, even though I know there are those who straightway dismiss any construal of scripture whereby God is believed to be acting in human affairs. Such, such objections notwithstanding, in describing the dynamics of this biblical hermeneutic in black preaching, I am trying to be faithful to what I see going on in the crafting of the black sermon. I still maintain that there is this distinctive hermeneutic at work, a powerful God who acts mightily on behalf of the uh, oppressed. I see what I am doing here today as a continuation of the work I began some time ago. The distinctiveness I have tried to describe has primarily been in comparison to the preaching of the Protestant majority in the United States. Initially, I engaged in this quest because I thought black preaching was being overlooked by those who were doing the research, writing, and publishing on the practice of preaching in the United States. As a student at Princeton Theological Seminary, I remember reading book after book on preaching where no black preacher was mentioned or only slightly mentioned in passing. But as I have written in previous publications, there are those works out there now written by people who are not black that make an effort to take the black preaching craft seriously. Just to name a few, Richard Lisher, the Preacher King, Keith Miller, Voice of Deliverance, L. Susan Bond, Contemporary African-American Preaching, O.C. Edwards, A History of Preaching, and Paul S. Wilson, the Canadian, the four pages of the sermon. In other instances, blacks and whites have teamed up with one another and published the results of what they learned from each other's preaching tradition. Among those works are E.K. Bailey and Warren Wearsby, Preaching in Black and White, Brian Blunt and Ch Gary Charles, Preaching Mark in Two Voices, a black and white pastor, professor, came together and talked about how they preach Mark, and Evans Crawford and Tom Troger, the hum, call and response in African-American uh, preaching. Uh, Troger is listening to uh, Crawford and helping Crawford to uh, 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 think through what is happening in the call and response or the antiphonal uh, or participatory proclamation that is so typical of the black church. And of course, there are blacks who have written about preaching and while not specifically naming black preaching in their titles, it was clear that they brooded over and reflected on the topic out of an African-American context that gave sustenance and shape to the development of their homiletic. Among those are Samuel DeWitt Proctor in The Certain Sound of the Trumpet, Gardner Taylor, How Shall They Preach, James Harris, Preaching Liberation, Frank Thomas, They Like to Never Quit Praising the Lord, and James Forbes, The Holy Spirit and Preaching. For my part, my own work has centered on the black engagement with scripture. While I cannot speak for an entire preaching tradition, since black preaching is much too diverse and widespread for such a claim, I do not believe it to be an overstatement to assert that many blacks have historically viewed the scriptures as being foundational 
to the preaching task. Yet our interaction with scripture by itself does not account for why there appears to be this distinctive ring to black preaching, even when placed in juxtaposition to another tradition that also takes scripture seriously. It is not simply race. It is not simply context. It is not simply education or lack thereof. It is not simply experience or training in imitation of the masters that causes this distinctive ring to sound within and without. What blacks do in their preaching is not other than these things, but it is more than these things. Thus, in my ongoing research, I'd like to add, to add another dimension to the list I have already put before you today, and that dimension concerns itself with a theological worldview that is receptive to the world of the Spirit. I am coming more and more to believe that theological worldview has a lot to do with distinctiveness in black preaching. Others before me have said this and said it better. If you really want to know what the black church thinks theologically, listen to its preaching. Our theology has always been more implicit than explicit. But if you listen intently to black preaching, you can get a sense of those subtle chords that buttress and bind this preaching tradition. I have always believed that the black theological worldview was much broader than the worldview deemed acceptable by the widely accepted Enlightenment theology. Scholars who have written on the future shape of Christianity have been most helpful in moving my thinking along in this regard. Among them are Andrew Walls, the distinguished European missiologist. In a recent study, Walls looked at Christian scholarship and the demographic transformation of the church. In his essay, he made note of what he termed the most remarkable feature of Christian history in the 20th century, the massive demographic and cultural shift in the composition of the Christian church. I noticed, Dr. George, that you had a blurb on the back of that book. I'm conscious of that. I'm, I want you to know that. Europe, says Walls, is no longer a Christian heartland, and North America is becoming subject to the same pressures. By the end of the 21st century, two-thirds of the world's Christians may be living in the southern continents. Africa, Latin America, and some parts of Asia have now become the Christian heartlands. While the demographics of the Christian church have shifted southward, the thought processes and cultural awareness have not yet moved proportionately, says Walls. Interesting. Walls, of course, is not the first one to note that Christianity is in decline in Western countries and that in Europe it has dwindled out of recognition in the latter half of the 20th century. Philip Jenkins, author of The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, and Kenyan scholar John Mbiti, are among many who have made note of this demographic shift. But what is quite interesting about Wall's essay and more directly related to my concern about the future shape of black preaching 
is what Walls believes will be the result of this shift in the 21st century and beyond. Says Walls, the implication is that Africa and Asia and Latin America and the Pacific seem set to be the principal theaters of Christian activity in its latest phase. What happens there will determine what Christianity, what the Christianity of the 21st and 22nd centuries will be like. What happens in Europe and even in North America will matter less and less. It is Africans and Asians and Latin Americans who will be the representative Christians, those who represent the Christian norm, the Christian mainstream of the 21st and 22nd centuries. What I want to argue today is that the black church in its present state bears some resemblance to the church of the future. Walls, Jenkins, Harvey Cox, and others have noted some of the belief patterns of Christians in the Southern Hemisphere. And some of them are not unlike the belief patterns of blacks in North America. Even though ridiculed in some circles for being pre-critical in their understandings of the Bible, many blacks never gave up their belief in the supernatural. In his brief essay, Walls focused on African beliefs and more specifically on theological worldview. Walls contrasted the African worldview with the Enlightenment worldview expounded by the missionaries who brought the gospel to Africa. Walls noted that fundamental to the Enlightenment worldview was a demarcated frontier between the empirical world, the world of what we can see and touch, and the other world, the world of spirit. In the Enlightenment worldview, natural could and must be distinguished from supernatural. The non-Christian and anti-Christian wing of the Enlightenment went so far as to argue that there was nothing on the other side of the frontier of the empirical world. Or if there was, we could know nothing about it. According to Walls, the greater part of the Western Secular Academy now works on that assumption, though it does not always make the assumption clear. It brackets out the whole of the other world, the world of spirit, even in the study of religion. But African visions of the world were different. The frontier between the empirical world and the spiritual world was being crossed and recrossed every day in both directions. Africans responded to the gospel in multitudes, but they could not easily lose the vision of that open frontier. As a result, the Enlightenment theology they inherited and the church practice based upon it frequently did not seem to fit the facts of daily African experience. The problem, says Walls, is that Western theology is pared down theology, cut and shaved to fit a small-scale universe. Most Africans 
even when they were participating in enlightenment activities, lived in a larger universe where the frontier was still open. That open frontier that Africans cross and recross daily is what I find helpful for the study of black preaching. I want to be specific in what I'm arguing here. I am arguing specifically for the open frontier of the world of spirit, where boundaries are crossed and recrossed every day in both directions. I am not arguing that blacks view that world in the same way as their African brothers and sisters. I am arguing, however, that the pared-down theology of the Western Academy that was cut and shaved to fit a small-scale universe was also always a tight fit for the theological worldview of the black church. Consequently, the theology African-Americans inherited and the church practices based upon it did not seem to fit the facts of daily African-American experience. There are similarities in worldviews between African-Americans and Africans regarding the empirical world and spirit world. American blacks, in a manner similar to their African counterparts, even while accepting of many of the finds of the Enlightenment, cross and recross those boundaries each and every day. And those crossings are reflected in their preaching. The spirit world is much more a part of black life and our religious experience than many people in the majority culture realize. There are things that blacks continue to believe about the spirit world that defy the enlightenment requirement that that which is real is that which one can see, feel, and touch. Much to the chagrin of the enlightened world, many in the black church never stopped believing in miracles, healing, dreams and visions, the demonic, the supernatural, and other such phenomena. I decided to make this the last lecture so I can slip out the side door and get to the airport. <laughs> Say, well, he did all right the first two days, but he went off the third day. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of the enlightened world, many in the black church, and Dr. Smith, this is the reality that we have to deal with, that this is the reality of the black church. Many there never stop believing in miracles, healings, dreams and visions, the demonic, the supernatural, and other such phenomena. Their theological worldview was much broader than the circumscribed worldview of the Enlightenment. And if you listen, you can hear this in black preaching even to this day. I told the group that I spoke to this morning, uh, what's her name, uh, Dr. Outlaw, that's some name. Uh, well, call her Jesse James or somebody else, Outlaw. <laughs> I, told the, I told the group 
with whom I was uh, speaking this morning about the experience that I had when I felt God's call upon my life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was 19 years old. I called my mother and my father and my two sisters into the living room of our home there in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I said to them, I have to tell you all something that's on my heart. And I started to weep. And as I started to weep, the phone rang. And my mother picked it up. And she said, hello. And the lady on the other end said, uh, Tommy, my mother's name, Tommy, I, I had a dream last night that your son is going to preach the gospel. And he called you all together in a room. And he was telling you all about it. And he was crying. And my mother said, I can't talk to you right now. He's telling us. You go figure. And for the longest, I was ashamed to speak of that experience because it crossed over into that open frontier. You understand? And it seems so anti-intellectual. It, it seems so, you know, But in my 50s now, I'm trying to make it home and I'm going to call it like I see it. <laughs> our task is, first of all, to own up to our continued belief in the world of spirit. That world on the other side of the frontier of the empirical world. We don't have to be ashamed of a tradition that crosses and recrosses that boundary on a regular basis. If walls is to be believed, 21st century Christianity is moving in that direction. The crossings are where we have historically and traditionally communed with the divine. We must probe those depths as best we can for the theological, and imaginative insights that they bring to our understanding of the holy and to our preaching. Blacks cross these boundaries all the time. You hear it in uh, their uh, stories of their call to the ministry and in their confessional preaching. William H. Myers discussing the call experience of African-American preachers noted that voices heard by the callees, as he called them, are the sign that appears most frequently in the parts of the story that discuss the call experience itself. They occur in a variety of forms. However, says Myers, the callees speak with absolute certainty and consistency about some aspect of the voices, that they heard a voice what it said and when they heard it, something or someone beyond them is speaking to them in some manner. In a recent publication, Gardner Taylor spoke of entering that world without directly attributing it to 
the divine. When asked about his sermon preparation method, Taylor said, and I quote, I would want to think that a sermon idea has been decided for me rather than I just decided it. Continuing, he says, I think that goes into that brooding. I shy away from the notion that it is all self-generated. And here we come upon the inexplicable. Taylor, this is Taylor. I was talking with Albert Einstein one morning in Princeton. And he said during the course of our conversation that an idea came to him. We cannot know what he meant. But I think he meant something like what happens to all of us. That you are thinking about brooding and then something comes. Now, is that self-generated? Taylor says, I don't think so. Maybe a part of it rises out of us, but a part of it comes down upon us. It's not just a matter of me deciding. And that is the mystery of it. A belief that we are in direct contact with the divine through the world of spirit the unseen world of inner reality, infuses much of black preaching. This understanding guides and directs us in our beliefs and practices, and it also undergirds and enhances our preaching. Uh, Bishop John Bryant, in a sermon entitled, We Got People, encourages the listener to open himself or herself to the world of spirit and see how many people we have on our side. Says Bryant, they that are with us are more <laughs> than those that are with them. This understanding guides and directs us. Take the example of Martin King during the early days of his leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott. Late one night, King received a telephone call the unidentified voice on the other end warned King that he would soon be sorry for stirring up trouble in Montgomery. King said, and I quote, I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen, heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before experienced him. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. King, early on, because I said to some of the students this morning, and we've got to talk about that more, I said to some of the students this morning, did you know that at one time Martin King packed a gun? They said, no, the great nonviolent. I said, yes, at one time, Martin King packed a gun. But he comes to this 
He comes to this understanding through these kinds of experiences of God being with him, guiding and directing and protecting him. King makes contact with the divine, an unseen inner reality, and it strengthens his resolve for the rest of his life. Yes, even to the end of his life. Some would say, oh, that was nothing but uh, a, a subjective experience from a fearful preacher. But many of us believe King made contact with the divine. We have always known, we, and this is a lecture about black preaching, so we have always known there is more to the preaching life than the realities of the empirical world that we can see and touch. We have always known there is more to preaching than interpretive strategies and correct biblical exegesis. In dealing with mystery, there are other dimensions that simply cannot be accounted for even when one has followed every step of the exegesis process. Even when you take a text, you cut it appropriately for the focus of your preaching. You make sure you understand every word in the passage. You look to see what's around it, what came before it and afterwards, who's speaking and who is being addressed. You consider the genre of the passage, narrative, parable, epistle, song, prayer, and so forth. You engage in brainstorming where you ask every conceivable question of the text before you. You put yourself in conversation with the scholars through your reading of devotional and critical commentaries. But still, still, the question eats at us. When and where will the divine speak to me? When and where? I feel my help coming. When and where will the divine come down upon me? When and where will the divine come over me? When and where? Does God speak to me and through me? Blacks have been more willing than many in North America to cross that divide between what is seen and unseen. What can be known through investigation and discovery and what can only be grasped as inbreaking gift and grace. It adds a dimension to our preaching that those laboring strictly under the influence of the Enlightenment are all too inclined to resist. Whether he is right or wrong, Andrew Walls noted that Africa's advancement and phenomenal growth may be due in large part to its distance from the Enlightenment. I urge blacks to struggle with both, both the finds of the enlightenment world and the realities of the unseen world. We have to move into that unseen reality. So many blacks are conscious of it and more and more are willing to speak openly about it. It definitely has an impact on our preaching. In the creative process, we have to be open to this larger worldview. We also have to be open to safeguards that keep it from going awry. But our search for safeguards must not diminish our search 
for the inner realities of the unseen world. Many of us have testimonies where we have had contact with phenomena from the spirit world. Whereas we have been hesitant to speak of these things, we could well be at home in the world of Andrew Wall's representative Christians of the 21st century. I give this lecture at Beeson today because I thought if I'm going to be put out of the academy for being crazy, I should do it among friends. <laughs> now, I, shall I preach a little? Okay. Um, this is Matthew. Our text is Matthew. The 14th chapter, uh, verses 22 through 30. And it reads thus in the New International Version. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went upon a mountain side by himself to pray. When evening was come, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. The outline for this sermon comes from an old Southern Baptist preacher named W.W. W. Melton. I want to talk about three kinds of trouble. Let us pray. Come now, O Lord, in power and in might. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Three kinds of trouble. The scene before us is a midnight scene. It is the night following the day of the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds had been with Jesus all day. They pressed in upon him. He ministered unto them, fed them, and then late in the evening, he sent the multitudes away. Jesus himself turned his slopes, his steps toward the mountain slopes where he intended to spend the night in prayer to his father. He instructed his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side. And Jesus headed for the mountain slopes to spend the night in prayer. Think about that. Jesus spending the night in prayer. And we try to pray between commercials because we don't want to miss anything on TV. And then we wonder why we have no power. Well, the disciples got into the boat and headed to the other side of the sea. 
But they had not been long into their journey before a tempestuous storm arose. And they did everything in their power to bring the little boat under control, but to no avail. Keep in mind now that they are out there at the request of Jesus. Some people think that when you obey Jesus in your life, you ought not have any troubles. But that's when trouble comes. When you make up in your mind that you're going to live for Jesus Christ. So they struggled to bring this little boat under control and to no avail. Bit by bit, little by little, moment by moment, their hearts filled with anxiety. They were overcome with fear. Not in Matthew's account, but in Mark's account of this same scene. Mark said, he saw them, referring to Jesus, as they toiled. What comfort, what assurance there is to know that whereas we shall not be spared from storms, Jesus has his eyes on us while we are in our storms. And that brings me to my first kind of trouble, and that's real trouble. Don't let anybody fool you. There is in this life a thing called real trouble. After you have brushed aside all you can brush aside and joked away all you can joke away and lightly dismissed all you can lightly dismiss, there remains a core in everybody's life where real trouble will settle every now and then. Real trouble. Uh, there is a thing called uh, uh, real trouble. And, and, and family members and friends, I, I know they mean well when they say to us, oh, quit being so negative. Uh, get your mind off of your troubles. Why don't you go to the mall and, and go shopping? You can go to that mall if you want to, but when you come out, you won't remember where you parked your car because real trouble has a way of gripping the whole of our existence. We face real trouble as we try to come to grips with the absurdities, the complexities, and the contradictions of life. When I speak of the absurdities of life, I mean the stuff that happens to us in this life that just does not make sense. In fact, it makes such little sense that it seems downright foolish. When you are facing the absurdities of life, Sometimes you cannot even use good grammar. You find yourself saying, ain't no reason for this here stuff to be happening to me. It's called the absurdities of life. The stuff that happens to us in this life that just does not make sense. You see, we all have some things that we want to achieve out of life, some things to which we aspire, some things we hope for. We all have some things that we want out of life. That's over here. But what we actually get out of life, that's over here. And that broad, empty space in the middle, that's called the absurdities of life. Lord, why am I so far away from what I wanted out of life as opposed to what I'm getting out of life? A man was asleep one night and he awoke only to discover that his wife was sitting up in the bed looking at him while he was asleep. That man got up, and I don't blame him. And he said, he, said, he said to his wife, Honey, why are you sitting up here uh, watching me while I'm asleep? She said, Oh, I don't know. I was just sitting up here thinking about what I wanted and what I got. 
And if you're not careful, it will keep you up at night too. It's called the absurdities of life. It's stuff that happens to us in this life that just does not make sense. Parents, we face it with our children. We struggle to bring our children up in a Christian home. We try to provide for them, give them better things than we had, good education, try to set them on the road of life. And the very one you don't want to see him or her with, that's the one they'll bring home. And the more you talk against them, the closer she gets to them. And you find yourself saying, why is my child so far away from what I wanted for her? as opposed to what she's about to get. It's called the absurdities of life, and it creates real trouble. We face real trouble as we try to come to grips with the complexities of life. Complexities of life are those things that we face in life that have no easy answer. There are people on radio and TV who have gotten rich handing out easy answers to complex problems. But there are some things that we face in this life that have no easy answer. And we have to bear up under that weight, not for a week, not for a month, but sometimes down through the years. And there are no easy answers. If you move too quickly, you'll hurt innocent people. If you move too abruptly, you'll do something for which you will be sorry. And so you have to bear up under the weight until God comes along and says, that's enough. You have carried this burden long enough. It's called the complexities of life. We face real trouble as we struggle to come to grips with the contradictions in our lives. Contradictions. When what I do makes a lie out of what I say. You see, my walk and my talk ought to be parallel. But when my walk starts to run into my talk, that's a contradiction in my life. And we all have them. Oh, how many times have we said to God, you know, if you get me out this time, I'm not going back that way anymore, but before you know it, you're right back there again. It's called the contradictions of life, and it creates real trouble. Well, there's a second kind of trouble out on that restless sea that night, and that second trouble is called imaginary trouble. The first one is real trouble. It's really happening to you. The second one is imaginary trouble. It's in your mind. When Jesus saw that they had been out there, struggling long enough. He left the mountain slopes and he goes to them walking on the water. He is depicted in scripture. And so as he gets close to them, they had had so much trouble out there that night that they just started looking for trouble. You can have so much trouble in your life that you don't even recognize help when it's coming your way. You would have thought they would have been glad to see Jesus. But oh, they had been through so much. When they looked up and saw something coming toward them, they cried out saying, oh my God, here comes the ghost. That's all we need out here tonight. And I want to tell you, Dr. Smith, I think Simon Peter said something that night that Matthew couldn't write down in the Gospels, but he thought he saw. He thought he saw a ghost coming that night. But it was imaginary. It was imaginary. Some people, whatever you, whatever you look for hard enough, you will find it. Some people spend their days looking for slights and insults. They have some kind of inferiority complex. They always think someone is trying to belittle them or put them down, and it creates in their lives imaginary trouble. There was a man named Mr. Big who lived in a small town. 
and everybody knew him. He had more land, he had more money, he had more everything than anybody. But a new man moved into town, and the new man was seen going into the bank every day. And Mr. Big just started imagining all kinds of things. What is he doing going in that bank? Is he, is he getting more money? Is he buying up some land? What is he doing? And when Mr. Big could stand it no longer, he jumped in front of the new man one morning, walked up to the teller's window and said, I want $10,000 on my signature. I said, okay, Mr. Big, wrote it out for him, gave him the money. He turned to the new man and he said, I have just borrowed 10000 on my signature alone. What have you come into this bank for? And the new man said, I have come into this bank what I come in here for every morning, a drink of water. Ah, imaginary trouble will run you into real trouble if you are not careful. And there is a third kind of trouble, a trouble that we don't like to talk about, but after the lecture this morning, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about it anyway. And that third trouble is satanic trouble. Satan-inspired trouble. Trouble from the demonic from the forces opposed to God and the things of God comes into our lives from time to time. When Peter discovered that it was Jesus, he said, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you walking on the water. And Peter got out of the boat and started walking toward Jesus and the demonic took him and he began to doubt and he started to sink. Demonic trouble comes into our lives from time to time. Uh, I do not have a theology of the devil, for I agree with the Protestant reformer Martin Luther when he said, recognize the devil for who he is and then get away from him as fast as you can. But I do want you to know that the demonic is real and comes into all of our lives from time to time. Call it him what it you will or may, the demonic is real and comes into all of our lives from time to time. Call him a notion of negativity or spirit of againstness, but it's real. Call him a psychological dysfunction or principle of evil operating within the confines of the universe, but the demonic is real and it comes into our lives from time to time. It shows up in scripture. and Wherever the demonic shows up, it always causes trouble. In Genesis, it's a tempter. In Revelation, it's a deceiver. Isaiah called him Lucifer, a fallen son of the morning, and Paul called him a ruler of the darkness of this world. The demonic is real. And when that comes into your life, the demonic tries to make you believe that he's going to have the last word. The demonic tries to make you believe that what he's about to put on you is more than God can handle. But I come to tell you this morning that Beeson, hold on. Help is on the way. <laughs> hold on. This too shall pass. Hold on. God is still on the throne. Hold on. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. It does not matter what kind of trouble comes into our lives from time to time. We have someone who can help us. And his name is Jesus. He can settle every doubt, overcome every fear, give you peace in the midst of your storm? Oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Let's thank God for what he has done this week through Dr. Cleophus J. LaRue.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.